This is the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pierno. All right, welcome back to another episode of the strategy inside everything. I'm excited for this conversation. I think it's safe to say you can trust me on that. <laughs> I made a pun that will become apparent why it's uh, a killer dad joke momentarily. I have the author of Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. Margot Bloomstein, thank you for joining. Hi there. How are you? I was just going to say, I appreciate the dad joke. That was well-timed. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, I can bring puns. I can do that for sure. <laughs> I'm really, I really enjoyed your book, and I was uh, happy that we were introduced and I have a chance to speak with you. I know the book is available uh, everywhere, pretty much. I know Amazon and independent booksellers. So people, I think when you hear more about the thinking behind it, people are going to really want to run out and get it. So thank you for making time. Thank you. So before we get into our topic, which is the concepts behind the book, uh, underneath the book, um, I wanted people to learn a little bit more about you. I know that you're the brand and content strategy consultant at Appropriate Inc., you are a lecturer in content strategy at FH Johanium. Yeah, that one's in, it's in, uh, in Austria and it's, it's wonderful. I've been teaching there several years in their graduate program and uh, students come from all over, primarily Europe, and I'm there by Zoom. <laughs> I know, Zoom has made a lot possible, like the conversation we're having right now. Right, right. It's fantastic. Um, before we dive in, would you give people a little bit more uh, context about your background and kind of how you got to where you are and even even how you started thinking about the content for Trustworthy? Sure. So um, I, I've been in consulting for about 20 years. I, um, I was born at a very young age. And, uh, and then my background is in design. I have my BFA in design and then jumped into content strategy around 2000. So heyday of the dot-com boom and, and bust I spent at Sapien and just learned a tremendous amount there. And uh, I was hired onto a content strategy team. They, they used that title. So it was, it was alive and kicking even at that point. Um, although in some respects, I think it was more or less glorified copywriting and um, with a mix of instructional design and, um, and technical writing brought mm. in. But I learned a lot there. And from there, joined um, a couple of smaller agencies, more like 50-person agencies that had hired me in to just really start their content strategy disciplines to figure out how would it complement design and information architecture as sort of that, that three-legged stool under user experience design. And then as, as their clients were raising issues that maybe could be resolved through content strategy, I worked to figure out, well, how do you sell it? How do you make it into a product? What are the components within it and, and the deliverables and activities along the way? And who needs to be involved in those different conversations? And that's still a lot of what I teach my students now through FHOHANIUM, um, where we're looking at what are the different components in content strategy? But then I also am always driving home to them that Yes, there are the deliverables, but it's the deliverables that punctuate the conversation. Yep. This is a participatory conversational kind of process and work because we're so focused on meeting the, the communication goals of different organizations and helping them figure out what those communication goals are and, and should be to meet the needs of our target audiences. And then in, in 2010, I went out on my own, formed Appropriate Inc., 
And under that umbrella, I partner with agencies to help them clarify and understand content strategy, position it as part of their offering, and then work with clients myself in a broad range of industries in, in higher ed and software and healthcare um, and, and beyond. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, content strategy, like all strategy, they all butt up against each other and they all run parallel. You're, you're solving, ultimately you're using similar deductive and inductive techniques to, to solve a diverse set of inputs to mm. get to different kinds of answers, but um, flexing similar parts of the brain. It's always interesting to me to talk to people at different disciplines and strategy about how they think about how they process problems and how they get to solutions. Yeah, that that's so true. I always find it exciting um, to to figure out the best way to position what I'm doing to meet the needs of my clients, because for some of them, content strategy, that's a familiar term, and they think it's exactly the same as content marketing or copywriting. And in other cases, they're familiar with creative direction, but then see it executed through more verbal means, through content types and, yep. and copywriting and editorial style. And that's fine. I think so much of what we do is about meeting our audiences where they are yes, and moving them to where we need them to go. So establishing that common language, tapping into their jargon and as well as body language and making sure that we can mirror it to meet their needs. And that's what we do with clients. And I think that's what in the best cases we help our clients do with their audiences as well. Yep. That's, yeah, it's the same. It's what do people think today and what do we want them to, what do we need them to think in order for them to trust us a little more, Right. which, which leads us into trustworthy. So I have a question for you right off the top. Do you trust me? Uh, you opened the book with a quote, I don't believe you, but I'm wondering if you trust me. Yeah, I don't you, trust you. you should, <laughs> you're listening to this. You shouldn't trust me. Maybe though you trust Adam because his voice is familiar to you. You've been tuning in for a while. You know what to expect as far as the level of detail maybe in our conversation and maybe also some, some vulnerability that comes through. So I think to get to your question, do I trust you? Well, I, I just met you. Yeah, you can answer honestly. That's even before we started recording, <laughs> you'll note I gave you a rundown of this is what's going to happen. Right. After we're done, this is how the process is going to work. I was trying to earn your trust. Now, that is not, Margot. That is not exclusively for you. I do that with every guest. Um, but, that, but I realized as I was uh, preparing for our talk, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to earn trust because when we come from neutral corners, you don't know me. And especially now that we're going via Zoom or digital, right. you don't know who, you don't really know too much about me. Right. We also discussed though, you have roots in upstate New York. I have roots in upstate New York. We both yep. have spent time in Boston. So we established that kind of, that, that sort of rapport, that, that common playing field that is shorthand for shared experiences. And I think it's by establishing that rapport, giving people ways to know who we are and how we are, that's how individuals build trust. I mean, that's what happens when, you know, maybe we, we take the project manager out for, out for dinner or we meet yes. up for coffee after like a certain big deliverable on the project or something. And um, we're, we're working to establish that relationship. And I think there's a real opportunity for businesses to do that too. You, you can't take your, your customer out for coffee, but you can communicate in a way that says, Yes, quote unquote, we're all in this together. We're, we're just like you. 
but more importantly, we can relate, we can establish compassion, if not empathy, because we have some shared experience. We can relate to your needs because maybe we've been there too. When you, oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think um, like one of the, the first examples that I offer in the book, and it's, uh, it's really a collection of, I think, my, my favorite examples and new, new case studies and, and interviews that, and conversations that I've been so fortunate to have. I, but uh, just to interrupt you, I love the examples that you use. I think the way they're, they're sprinkled and varied throughout the book is, is an interesting, it's a good collection that are not the kind of common beats that you get in each, in each uh, medium article, for example, they're, they're that, thoughtful. That's and, wonderful. Yeah. I really enjoyed that part. Thank you. I mean, I tried to spotlight the examples that I've come across that, yeah, maybe they are a little bit more kind of wackadoo and out there and left field, but have certainly illuminated my experience. And then as I was looking across the, the different stories where I had aggregated interviews with um, like the chief creative officer of America's test kitchen and um, somebody that works at a adult toy retailer, let's say, um, as well as somebody that's done content strategy for the FBI and design yeah. for Airbnb and the National Health Service in the UK. As I was looking across them, that's where I started to see the patterns and the shared experiences from which we could pull out a framework to say, there's a new and a better way to do this work of establishing trust. And if we look at it in aggregate, we can see those patterns to pull out that new framework and then apply it in all business contexts. Um, but I was just going to say, like the first example that I have in there, I believe is from, from MailChimp, the email marketing company. Yep. They're a small business, or they were a small no, business that served anymore. other small businesses. Right, right. They started out, though, as this small business. Now they, they host something like 60% of the world's email marketing messages go through MailChimp. Not exactly a small business anymore, but they're still trying to be sort of Jenny from the block there by establishing rapport with their audience of other small businesses by speaking in a way that says, hey, we use these tools too. Here's what we've learned. Here's how we can spotlight the work of some of our other clients so you can learn from them too. So they're keeping the language very accessible and familiar. They've taken steps that, that I write about in the book to keep their brand familiar by, by operationalizing the work of, of consistency and authenticity over time. And then by always speaking in a way that gives their audience reasons to to find them familiar they're helping them know the brand as well as feel comfortable that they know the brand to have sort of comfort in their own knowledge and that's what fosters trust there that's yeah, what fosters yeah. trust in many brands for brands for if you can get your customers to even believe there is something to know mm. versus transact with there's something worth grasping onto um, that's that's the difference between that's part of the difference between a brand and a business is that that access that there is there is something to know there is something to think about beyond click here to buy or whatever it might be i wanted to you referenced pretty early in the book as well um, the new york times and you can't read a book about trust in 2021 without thinking about where we are with the media and where we are and i know this is not this book is not about that uh, explicitly but there's other places in the book where you reference trust of scientists and talk about, you, you present an interesting case for the New York times and how they use the, 
you have three V's, uh, voice, volume, and vulnerability. You talk about how they use vulnerability to improve some of their reporting and some of their offering. Can you can you walk me through that a little bit? Because it it I have it, it sparked a lot of ideas for me about that brand and about news in general. Sure. So the New York Times, if we look at them in the context of the broader media landscape, let's I guess kind of zoom out a little bit to that point first. You're right. This is not a book about politics or media, but we at the same time we can't ignore the work of politics and politicians and the way the media has covered them, the way mass media has covered them over certainly I would say the past five years or so. The most just to pick a just to pick a random sample of time, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that I think that's certainly where I started my research into this topic. Because I noticed back in 2016 that seemed like something was different in the world of politics, like understatement of the year there. But uh, it seemed like something was different where the way we were covering politicians and our expectations of them had changed. Because it used to be that when the media caught a politician in a lie, that's that was it. Um, that was that, the end of that politician, yeah. Exactly, yeah. They would scuttle the campaign and it would be over. And that wasn't happening. And I think politicians on both sides of the aisle at times were playing fast and loose with the truth, but it didn't necessarily change what their what their followers thought and believed. It didn't necessarily affect how their followers thought and and considered reasons to trust them. And I thought that was interesting because it underscores the idea that we don't necessarily trust politicians or media or brands. We trust ourselves and our knowledge of them. And trust is is something that parallels that idea Mm -hmm. of cultural identity. And if you saw yourself as a Trump supporter, regardless of what he said, you'd still see yourself as a Trump supporter. Right. Because it's it's tough to shake someone's belief in themselves and and belief that they know what the world is about. But that is exactly what happened that led up to so much support for him. When you had the media um, not necessarily taking the same approach to covering him and then different media outlets and politicians engaging in gaslighting their audiences and saying, Don't trust the evidence of your own eyes. Don't believe anybody but me. I'm your one true source of truth. Yeah. It caused people to to kind of pull back from maybe the responsibility and an opportunity of evaluating information on its own merits and, and trusting the evidence of their own eyes. So people kind of pulled back and said, well, everybody's out to get you. All politicians lie. Instead, I'll just trust what I hear within my filter bubble, maybe from people that are quote unquote, just like me. I'm guilty of this as well. And, and I mean, it's tough not to fall into that, right? I mean, most of the time we we like our friends, we have our friends because we respect them and we we agree with what they say to a degree. Yes. We want to hear their restaurant recommendations, their movie recommendations. We want to want to see what they just tweeted or posted about reading. And that's that's fine and good until we discover that maybe maybe our filter bubbles are being gamed, that that different brands are gaming the ratings or or infiltrating those filter bubbles and telling us what we should read. And, and algorithms are prioritizing some of our options. 
I think when people became more aware of that, they continued to pull back to instead go back to the world of, of just gut instincts and saying, you know, I'm turning away from those traditional sources of expertise. I'm turning away from traditional sources of authority. And I include marketing in that type of authority. Yeah, that, that's terrible for brands. Right, right, right. Because if you're trying to sell something, if you're trying to push your expertise, if your team is trying to say, these are the new features coming out and here's why they should matter to you. But people say, eh, I don't want to hear it. Where do you go from there? Yeah. So what what did the Times do to, I mean, it's so crazy overall. I mean, the Times, I think of is, is one of the papers of record. Right, um, right. So it's weird to have to have this conversation, but you talk about vulnerability and the way in a few particular stories, the way they use that and used what you said, I don't trust them, but I do trust myself. Um, they use that to in, enhance reporting. Something that the New York Times has done really well in several different stories and beats is admitting what they don't know mm. and leading with the idea that they don't have all the answers. So instead, they look to the people on whom they're reporting, the, the different cultures and cities and topics to say, well, what else should we be discovering here? What is most important about these topics? They've done that on the subject of, of race relations in Chicago. They've done it on a few other stories where they've effectively crowdsourced this to say, tell us what else is really important on this topic, because we don't have all the answers. You can say that maybe that's a response to, to cutbacks in journalism and cutbacks in, in many newsrooms, which is its own kind of big problem. But I think what they're doing in saying, we don't have all the answers, but we can still be the, the experts in the room in publishing this material and bringing it out to a greater audience and maybe um, engaging in further inquiry around the topic. That's their strength. And I think that's a powerful position. And that idea of vulnerability is something that, that is changing among many brands and industries and across the media landscape. Because the, the trend used to be that you needed to seem bigger than you were. You needed to be infallible, have all the answers, whether you were a, a leader in manufacturing or if you were in government or public health. And we've seen the problems with that people don't believe false bravado. That idea that you do need to be bigger than you are, that was hot like in the 1980s. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. It used to be that we all wore, wore shoulder pads and even businesses wore shoulder <laughs> pads to be bigger than they were. And now people say, no, how do we get more like on human scale? Um, kind of at the, at the level of the story and at the level of our users to say, we're a small business just like you even if that isn't always the case anymore? Um, how do we still represent ourselves in a way that is transparent and accessible to say we're learning to? Yes, and we relate to, we still, we come from small business so we relate to small business, even in the case of MailChimp where they're, they're no longer, but they still have the roots there. Right. I, right. Think, that's, I, think, I think that's fair. That, I think that applies to MailChimp. That applies to even, you look at big giant corporations like, like Kellogg's. Recently, I was looking at um, RX bar, the, the protein bar. They were started by uh, a couple of guys um, that I think were like childhood friends, I think in the Chicago area. And they've kept the product pretty simple. Um, there's only like half a dozen ingredients in every bar. The packaging also is pretty simple. It's like they couldn't afford a, a serif typeface or something. It works. It works pretty well. Yeah. Um, it's 
transparent. It's blunt. They're not putting on any airs. If you go to their website, you can read sort of about their, their origin story, how they started out knowing each other in, in elementary school, and they're still humble and accessible. Nowhere does it say that a few years ago they were acquired by Kellogg's for $600 million. <laughs> That's funny and now they've got this, these giant <laughs> marketing resources behind them. And it doesn't come across like that as a strategic choice. That, that was a strategic decision to sure. keep the product accessible and human scale and not mom and pop, more like dude and dude, but uh, it's still- Same idea. Yeah. Do you, do you think about, is, is this trust gap, does it exist equally across verticals or does it, besides media, you know, take the news out of it. Obviously there's a different challenge there, but for CPG and service industry and fitness, healthcare, you know, think about the broadest level of, of verticals. Is it the same gap? Is it pretty equal or is it, does it vary by, by vertical? That's a good question. So what I saw in in interviewing different creative directors and marketers for Trustworthy was that so many of these problems show up across industries. Many of the same issues that the FBI had to wrangle with in, in their content, those issues cropped up for, for other brands as well um, that were far outside of the realm of, of policing or government but where they needed to still project the same level of, of access and had similar communication goals. I think I compare the FBI and Banana Republic dealt, dealt with very similar issues. And we can see that kind of across industries. I think some of the ones that, that you called out around public health and fitness and consumer packaged goods, those, those industries in particular highlight the need for for people to feel a greater sense of control and understanding. I think certainly in their, in their interactions and use with, with the, some of those different brands, people wanna feel knowledgeable about what they're putting in their bodies, what they're doing with their bodies. They wanna feel in control and like they have access to the most up-to-date information. And again, that's one of those areas though where, where false bravado and assurances around safety and research and privacy, when brands promise too much and then people discover the truth, yeah, it's tough to come back from that kind of trust deficit, that sort of loss of trust. Well, you, you know, we referenced pol political campaigns and, you know, one slip up could derail a campaign in the past doesn't anymore, but it did once upon a time. Uh, Howard Dean made a funny noise at a podium and he was disqualified yeah. for life from doing anything. Right. But is it not true? Like I see some of the same, from a tech standpoint, some of the same brands are in the news every week with these slip-ups that are like data got loose or we accidentally published this story about something terrible that we shouldn't have. And it doesn't seem to diminish profitability. Maybe it does diminish trust. Um, do you see that in like when you work with Love Honey, for example, or the FBI is also a freak story in a, in a certain way because there's so many facets to it. But Love Honey, like if they if they had a mishap like that, they, that's talk about the difference in scale as a part of the recovery from those types of um, trust breaking events. 
Okay. So yeah, let's talk about Love Honey then. So adult toy retailer, the the largest in Europe. And they're in a in a space in an industry where trust and privacy, data security, all those things matter. I don't know that it is so much an issue of scale because that's a case where every transaction is incredibly personal and intimate by the nature of the transaction. True. When somebody's putting information into a search engine there, they're revealing their their deepest, darkest desires. And so to engage somebody in a transaction through a website where you're saying, tell us what you want and we'll recommend the right thing, that requires a certain level of trust and respect and also building rapport. So the example that I share in Trustworthy is... um, about a, uh, a sort of shopping wizard that they had developed to, to recommend certain adult toys. And the tone that they offer in it in the final version is somewhat consultative. It isn't cold, it isn't overly academic, but it's also not overly chummy or, or silly because any kind of tone that incorporated those qualities would be would be challenging to the overall process. It would make someone feel uncomfortable. And certainly when you're working with any kind of interactive bot, an interactive chat bot, you're in that space of wrangling with with information in the uncanny valley. People need to understand that this is not live chat. There's not a person at the other end of it, but at the same time, it can't be entirely cold and clinical. (laughs) Certainly not in that industry. There's There's a fine line, right? Right, right. So they work to make sure that as people are interacting with the product, they're always getting reminders that I'm just a chat bot. Let me pull up the right information for right. you now. There's not actually a person at the switch here that is that cares one way or the other. Right, right. And that enables people to have a more useful, usable experience that, that helps them, gets them on their way to finding a product, putting in the shopping cart and checking out with it. So in that way, they're able to still maintain trust in a very transactional experience. And it turns out that kind of trust that, oh, I know I can go to this website. It will be a a pretty broad, comprehensive array of products because I've come to understand how they organize products here. and, And I know I'll be able to find what I want. Also, I know that I will get good recommendations because the analytics behind this, the analytics behind the search engine and the product array, there's enough metadata to give me good recommendations. That's what people trust in the experience, the yes. privacy, the security, the guidance. And that's what enables them then to trust the brand itself. Yeah. And, and even beyond privacy, uh, lack of judgment. It's not necessarily empathy, but it is nobody's there looking at you funny. You're, right. you're free to free to explore how you want. And we, we're not that we don't care, but we don't pass judgment on you. It's a different, right. better way to say right. it. Right. When I first started working with Love Honey, um, it was with one of their, um, uh, one of their kind of luxury lines and had the opportunity to do some user research and see what the experience was like shopping in one of their stores in the brick and mortar store. And it was interesting to see the comparisons between how, how the in-store associates adopted this kind of more consultative style with customers that, as you said, was free of judgment. And we were looking at what does it mean to translate that into the online experience? We always say in 
in design and in business strategy as well. God is in the details. Like it's those details that make relationships more, more valuable. And when you get them wrong, that's, that's what causes a brand to lose trust. And certainly in this kind of environment with, with that kind of brand and, and that sort of subject matter, there are so many opportunities to, to lose your customer. Yes. But they didn't. They're successful because every step of the way, they're building trust. They're meeting their customer where they are with the kind of language they use, mirroring it back in things like the architecture of the website, the, the level of detail around instructional copy and reviews and whatnot, and offering them just enough information so that people feel feel smarter about the product they're about to buy or smarter and more confident about the decision they're about to make that may be expensive, might be at a higher price point. Um, so they want to feel good about it. They want to feel yeah. good about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You want to leave them with that feeling that they made the right choice and confident that they got what they wanted because they felt free to ask the questions they needed to ask and they didn't feel intimidated, which is huge in that industry. Right. Right. They're a very empowering brand. I, I write a lot about um, America's Test Kitchen and had the opportunity to, to speak with Jack Bishop, their chief creative officer. And something that he said just really stuck with me. And I think I brought it into them probably every other interview that I conducted and every other bit of research the, that I uncovered. This idea that success breeds confidence. And America's Test Kitchen, with all of their investments in different content types and cookbooks and a cooking show, a cooking school, the Instagram feed, they're always trying to set up their audience of, of home cooks to be successful. So they feel confident in themselves and then confident in the brand. And I think that idea of, of empowerment and how we invest in helping our audiences be more successful, that affects transactional websites like lovehoney.com. It affects interaction with the FBI's um, crime center database, where they're looking at how people can pull information from it if they're journalists or people working in, in tracking crime and, um, and municipal policing. It comes through, I think, in every example that if we're not helping our, our, our users feel successful, they will lose confidence. Yeah, it's the whole thing. Um, we, we've talked about two of your three. We talked about voice. We talked about um, vulnerability. I want to talk about volume. That's the one that I was surprised to see the way you considered volume as a uh, component of building trust or an ingredient to trust one way or the other, actually. Um, sure. give, me, give me a the high-level view of how volume of communication factors in. So in... In that framework of voice, volume, and vulnerability, by volume, I mean how much a brand needs to say in terms of length and level of detail in verbal and visual components. Um, so how long should your blog posts be? How many bullet points do you need in a product description? The length of your pages? How many images in a photo gallery? And then also within those images, are you using diagrams that are incredibly detailed or are you taking more of the Ikea approach of simplicity from right. products to design and everything in between? And that, that challenge around volume comes to a fundamental question that I think we hear more and more in organizations of how much is enough? How, how much should you write? How much should you say? And how detailed does this all need to be? 
because I think in some respects that gets it, how much work do we need to do? Yeah. How much do we need to invest? You, you right. say it very well. Uh, you say uh, there's a big difference between complete versus comprehensive. Right. Right. And I think in some brands, the, the challenge to be comprehensive, to address every facet of, of a product, every bit of detail that you can share, it overwhelms your audience. Sometimes that can be a good thing. They, they gain respect just knowing that you've done that kind of research. They don't need to read about it, but good to know that it's there. One of the examples that I share is um, Crutchfield Electronics. They are known for publishing tremendous amounts of content, looking at the different products they sell. Maybe if it's a, a, a home audio system, they're comparing it, offering you a lot of information about how to determine like the right the right stereo system for your needs, depending on the number of soft surfaces and hard surfaces in the yeah, space. And um, also known for giving you the tech specs. If you, if you yeah. really want to get into the ohms and all that, they'll, right. you can get it there. Right. Yeah. You can get the tech specs. You can also see inside the products. If it's um like some really high tech cooler, let's say you can see the video when they saw it in half out in the parking lot or how tough it is to install that stereo in a car out in their parking lot as well. They're, they're doing a lot of stuff, creating a lot of content out in their parking lot and a lot of different content types. If you're more of a visual learner, verbal learner, and what they've seen on these very long pages on their website is that when people get to the end of those long pages, they click to read more because they, this is an audience that loves to take in a lot of information. So it's right for their target audience. It's also right for the price point of the products that That's, they sell. It's the combination of those two things that is the key. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and no, using the analytics to determine that those people that scroll all the way down take another action versus looking at scroll depth on its own and saying, well, people are reading it. That's good. No, we need to know if they did, if they engaged what more. What next? Yeah. Right. Right. And I think what they've determined is that that process of reading and taking in more information before you put the product in your shopping cart, that's the opportunity, that sort of slow content strategy opportunity for people to sit with their choices, to say, am I comfortable in this decision to go through a cycle of, of confirmation and validation and confirmation and validation to say, yes, this is still the right product for me. And they know that content works. They measure the success of it and they effectively measure trust by seeing that after people finally buy a product, it's very rare for them to return it. They mm. feel good about it. They feel confident about the product because they feel confident about themselves. And they got every, every possible detail they wanted, including watching right. the thing get sawed in half. Right. <laughs> Who doesn't <laughs> want that? It's kind of the will it blend. Yeah. <laughs> I still will get sucked up watching those dumb things. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say that more content is always better content because there's also the example where having more content sometimes just confuses your audience. I, I share the example from, um, from gov.uk where they went from something like 75,000 pages of content spread across nine different websites like, hello, maintenance nightmare down to 3,000 pages when they realized that what they were offering was more content, but it was not useful content. It was not complete. And going to your point around being comprehensive versus being complete, they realized they could say less and help their audience feel more confident that they had enough information to know 
how to get the right forms, how to file taxes, how to take advantage of government services, all of those types of things. Yeah, I think those sprawling pages are, or sprawling sites are the, the relics of post.com. Like, let's get everything we have on the internet. And people are now, over the past 10 years, have realized, no, no, we just need the important stuff and give them a way to ask the deeper question, whether it's through a chatbot or a 1-800 number that they can, or a form. I, I know you don't believe this, but some people will still use a form. Um, it doesn't have to be a chatbot, but give them a way to get that information that they want if they want it. Um, right, right. Especially for, for the example you just cited. We don't need to have thousands of pages of regulations. People are not going to read it. Right. And I think they also realized that they were offering content that it went far beyond regulations and the kind of information that government should be offering. They had content on there, like if you were interested in beekeeping in in Great Britain, they had information on different types of bees, species, how to, <laughs> how to build your hives and all, how to react in different types of weather, which is great information. And government had no business publishing it and maintaining it. That's better Ugh. left to maybe an, an agricultural organization. So they adopted the mindset that government should only publish content on the things that only government can publish content. So let's tell people how to pay certain VAT taxes and whatnot on importing bees to the country. But the rest of it, we don't need to do. Yeah. And that for only further reinforces confidence that we're, we're going to stay out of the things we don't own and we don't manage and we don't control. And therefore we'll make less mistakes. And therefore you'll know when we tell you something, it's something we know about. Right. Right. Good. Gets to be common sense once you get to the end of it, but it's hard when you're looking at that first step for people to recognize we got to cut 70% of this, right. this content. And I think to go through a content auditing process that lacks that mindset or lacks some sort of guiding belief is futile because it's great to see what you have, but how do you know if it's any good and how do you know if it's relevant? Yes. And that question of relevance and quality, you only know if you, if you first figure out, well, how do we know if our content is good? Well, maybe if it upholds specific communication goals, let's figure those out first. And then how do we know if our content is relevant? Well, let's first figure out what is the, what's the information that only we can offer and that our audience wants. Like if you picture that as a Venn diagram, you need to operate just in that middle portion. That is, that is harder, easier said than done I right. think, from, from many organizations who that, that they have someone that is passionate about that beekeeping angle that does not, mm -hmm. sometimes it just becomes a challenge. You know how those pages got added and now you know what you have to right. do to get rid of them. And that always is a... Uh, yeah. Sticky spot. And I think it's tough to turn to your client or, or in your own organization and say, are we publishing this information because we should, or just because we always have? Right. Do we, do we blog because it meets a need for us and our target audience or because somebody here just loves to blog? Right. And what are they, are they posting recipes on our site? Is that good? Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you end the book with with something that I read twice, um, the, your vision for the future. I don't know why I found it so unexpected that you, that you put that in there. Um, would, you, would you talk a little bit about, I don't, you know, I don't want you to narrate the vision for the future. I want people to experience it, but talk about what got you there thinking about, thinking forward that way, because, it, because the book is very much of a time. And it, like mm -hmm. we talked about at the top, 
I was pleased <laughs> when I got to the vision of the future. I said like, okay, there's hope because of these things. How did you, what, what compelled you to say, I really think it's important that we close the book with this, with this idea. I mean, I think in any sort of, any sort of business book or, or guide for doing things differently, we should always know why. And then <laughs> so, so what, if we do these things, if we embrace this kind of challenge and opportunity as people in design or content strategy or marketing or, or any kind of professional communication, if you're a CMO that picks this up and says, yes, this, this is our, these are our marching orders. This is our path forward. I think that's great. But then you should also realize what's the impact? What's yeah. the sort of change you should create that you could create in society? Because that's, I think, a real opportunity for business. As we've seen, people have lost trust in, in institutions. As cynicism has increased, we've seen how people have, have pulled away. And the opposite of cynicism is connection. So when they're pulling away from opportunities to, to connect with, with society, with their neighbors, with their community, with maybe the businesses and brands that they used to support because they, they identified with them, but now they're pulling back. That's a real problem. And I think there's an opportunity for business and for brands to step into that void now and say, business can be a force for good. And you may operate far outside the realm of government and politics and media, but that isn't to say that you can't do anything to affect those arenas. That isn't to say that you can't do anything to affect a problem that now plagues every industry and our entire society. And I'm fundamentally optimistic about that. And I think as, as somebody working as a consultant, I have to be optimistic. I think we all need to be optimistic because yes. otherwise, why would we do this? Yeah. And how, how can we move anything forward if we don't believe we're going to make an impact? Right. Right. And I think we, we can look at the world as it is. Cynics look at the world as it is and say, oh, it's worse. I think designers and people in communications and builders of brands and brainstorms, we look at the world as it is and say, it can be better. Here's how. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to, to give people, the yeah. how. I got it. I received it and I was like, oh, I feel like this was written just for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, needed, I needed that uh, positive runway to see, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. And that reminder. So I, I definitely enjoyed that. Like I said, I read that bit twice. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And you said that it, it was surprising because this is of this moment. I don't think this moment is going away. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. We are, this is the, uh, this is our present for a while. Mm -hmm. And if not indefinitely, but, but I think if people start, if brands and people in strategy roles start driving towards trust and confidence in institutions and in whatever we're peddling, whatever we're offering, whatever we're saying, we can get to that, that next phase, which should be brighter. Right, right. Well, I think we, we make it brighter by looking at how we reinvest in building confidence in, a, in our audiences, empowering our users so then they can bring that knowledge um, and that confidence that they know how to assess information, that they can go out and learn more. They can bring that then into all of their other interactions as well. That's great. Uh, Margot, thank you so much for making time to chat with me today. It was really great uh, 
getting on with you and uh, having this conversation. I really enjoyed reading the book. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Oh, good. The book is Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. Margot Bloomstein, thank you so much again for your time. And again, the book is available pretty much everywhere. Amazon is always a safe place to look for a book, but uh, also available at uh, independent booksellers as well. So check it out. I think you will be uh, well rewarded for your, your time reading it as I was. Thanks again, Margot. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at mbloomstein, or if you visit appropriateinc.com slash trustworthy, that's where you can sign up for my newsletter and find out where I'm going to be speaking next, hopefully at one of those independent booksellers near you. All right. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Strategy Inside Everything is produced by me, Adam Kierno. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps. If someone shared this with you and you're just not sure where you could find it, you can go to specific.substack.com and sign up there and get episodes before everybody else. For more information about me, Adam Pierno, you can go to adampierno.com. There's information about my books, my speaking, and my strategy work. Have an idea for a guest? Send it my way. Just go to adampierno.com and you'll find a form there that will help you connect. Thanks for listening. 